Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here on this, uh, as we continue our series in Ecclesiastes. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you go right in the middle of your Bible, you'll probably hit Psalms or Proverbs. And uh, one book over forward would be Ecclesiastes. And again, if you don't have a copy of the Word or one on your device, uh, there's some Bibles in the back, and you're welcome to, to keep one of those with our compliments. The sermon series that we are in for a number of weeks uh, is, is entitled A Handful of Clouds. And uh, the subtitle is pretty important, A Search for a Meaningful Life. Meaningful, uh, what I mean by meaningful is full of positive, eternal significance. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's possible, though rare, to live a life of consequence uh, in human history. Though it has to be said that not every life of consequence um, is good good. So, for instance, Madame Curie helped us learn how to treat cancer. That's a life of consequence. But Stalin killed six million of his own people. That was also a life of consequence. And so, living a life of consequence is not necessarily meaning that you have a life full of positive eternal significance. A life of eternal significance can be lived by a praying grandmother whom you have never heard her name, nor will you ever hear her name, yet she has a life full of meaning. The other night, week, we noted a couple different ways that we can search for a meaningful life. So I'm just taking a, a second here to kind of recap some things, because we're going to be going on this, this trip, all right? And, and it's going to be about 15 messages. This is the second one. So if you're just joining us, uh, you can pick up at any time in, in this journey. But we noted there are three different ways that we can look for a meaningful life. The first one is under the sun. In other words, if you say that I can only believe things that I can test in a laboratory, things that are empirical and material, then this is where it's going to leave you. So what you can observe on this little sphere when you take life on its own terms. Now, if you're going to approach life that way, uh, you will have your work cut out for you. And in the end, there's a chance you will despair because there are things about this life that are inscrutable. I mean, you can wrap, you try to wrap your mind around it with the best we have to offer, and you will not get to the bottom of it. And that is the way that the author of Ecclesiastes is approaching it. The second is, is escapism. We noted the other week that a lot of people just don't think about it. Um, they stick their head in the sand. This is the, this is the ostrich way. Uh, you just try to live a, a decent life and, and don't think about it too hard. And really, that is a recipe for disaster. The third possible way, and the one that I would recommend, is that we listen to God's word. The other week, we learned that you don't have any gain for your toil. You can work your entire life and not have anything to show for it in eternity. However, in Jesus Christ, when you follow Jesus Christ, everything we do has significance. Everything matters. Everything is stored up as a reward and we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 58 that says that your labor is not in vain when it is in the Lord, when you follow Christ Jesus. So those are three ways that you can approach life. Now, there may be some variations of those, but generally when you meet the man on the street and you talk to them, they're going to be approaching life from one of these three ways. And only one of them is going to lead to answers to a meaningful life. Now, as we take this trip through Ecclesiastes, I think we also have to be um, aware of a couple different terms. Now, if you can grab these terms and have them firmly fixed in your mind, then as you open up this book for yourself, 
I do encourage you to open up the book for yourself. Sometimes we're scared to open up our Bibles. And Ecclesiastes is just one of those intimidating books. But if you can get these three things in your mind, it will help to start sort some of the things out, some of the more difficult sayings of Ecclesiastes. Those three terms are on the screen. The first is, now I don't do this often, but this is actually just a transliterated Hebrew term, koheleth. Now that is the word that keeps on being interpreted as some of your Bibles, the preacher or the teacher. You may say the professor or the quester. Um, or you could just call it the uh, transliterated word, Koheleth. Now, we may do that some. This is our guide. And what Koheleth is doing is inviting us to join him in a search for meaning. Now, there are times when Koheleth sounds like a skeptic. Because what he's going to do is he's going to take these insufficient ways of viewing life or these inscrutable things, and he's just going to kind of like float them up, and then he's going to pop those bubbles he is de- deconstructing things. He's, he's taking things apart. But we will see, uh, both in glimpses, and we'll catch a glimpse of it in our passage today, and then especially in chapter 12 at the end, that Koheleth is firmly a man of faith. The second word or phrase that you need to be aware of is under the sun. This phrase is used about 30 times in the book. And what it is pointing out is that it's limiting the scope of observation to this ceiling. Basically, it's got a ceiling. So everything that we can see under the sun is what we are observing with no help from above. And then finally, the last word is vanity. Now, we noticed the other week that this is a shape-shifting word. You kind of have to see the context. But basically, it means breath or vapor. Again, the, uh, we're not going to use a lot of Hebrew because I'm not good at Hebrew, but the Hebrew word is hevel. And it's one of those words that makes you actually, what, I forget what it's called. It's not onomatopoeia. I listen to somebody call it out. But a word that makes you do what it's saying. Hevel. It's like breathing out. And we notice it's like this, this breath of vapor on, on a day. And it's, it's brief. It's unsubstantial. And that's why we call this a handful of clouds. If you insist on viewing life only under the sun and getting meaning, then it's going to be vapor. Now, These vanities are not bad things in themselves. They're just unable to sustain our hopes. And so if you attempt in finding meaning in only what we see, then you'll find it to be hevel or vanity. The sermon today is called Chasing the Wind. In this, we're going to see Koheleth putting up four different tests about life to see if he can find some meaning in them. And then he's going to wrap up some conclusions. So that's where we're going. Now, um, we've got a national event coming upon us pretty soon in February. Somebody called out that it was uh, Valentine's Day, but not Valentine's Day. Maybe more important than Valentine's Day. Ah, yes, it has a number attached to it, 58, the Super Bowl. You know, this is, uh, half of this is about the football, and the other half, for some of you, like, no, it's the whole event, is what? The commercials, the commercials. Now, If you had to watch those commercials and conclude what a good life, what a fulfilling life is, if you had an alien next to you and you said, hey, let me show you uh, what we earthlings view as the good life based off of these commercials. And, you know, you watch the two and a half hours there. And uh, what would they come away with? Well, for one thing, you'd be driving a, a Kia or a Chevy or something, but probably electric. You need to drive it up a snowy mountain until you park it on a peak. It needs to have weather tech, you know, uh, 
what are those things called? Um, yeah, yeah, those things. You've got to have some weather tech, and you'd be drinking light beer, no doubt, and uh, munching on Pringles while eating avocados from Mexico. Of course, you would capture every picture on uh, Google and, you know, take out the things that you don't want. And in the meantime, you'd be investing with, with E-Trade and uh, wearing sketchers like Snoop Doggy Dog. And, uh, and, oh, yes, of course, you'd smell like Downey. Now, obviously, tongue firmly in cheek here. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is, does being a nation of consumers lead us to joy? Well, the preacher warns us that they do not. We're going to meet him for the first time in his words in verse 12. I invite you to turn your attention to your your scripture there. Chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, I want to just pause there for just a second. Notice that he says that, that I was king. I have been king. Now, personally, I do not believe that this is Solomon. I believe that this is a wisdom teacher who writes about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and he is actually taking on the persona of King Solomon to make a teaching point. He is, he is mimicking Solomon. He is saying, for my search, I am going to take on all the resources and wealth and experience of a King Solomon. Now, some people do believe it's Solomon, and I really don't care to wade into this too deeply, but I'm going to do so for a second just because I think it's going to be helpful for us as we look for this meaning. So first, uh, one reason is that he never calls himself Solomon. If you look at the verse, he says, I was king in Israel. Um, In Proverbs, he identifies himself clearly as Solomon. And so we also notice after chapter 2, when we see this really great experiment, he just drops the royal language. He doesn't pretend to be Solomon after that. Second of all, the pessimism of the book doesn't fit kind of like the Solomon's golden age. In Solomon's age, everything was, was optimistic. And here, as we go through this, you're going to see that he is deeply pessimistic, there is, there is oppression, and there's, um, there's injustice happening, and he seems powerless to stop it. And that just fits the, the, the type of Israel that would be happening after the Babylonian captivity. And so, uh, and I think the concern of the author is for the young men of nobility, kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It wasn't those guys, but they were, they were Israelites who had to operate in the king's courts and do so in a wise method. And also Israel had moved outside its agricultural setting as now is in the center of a crossroad of trades and there were fortunes being made and fortunes being lost and these men were getting swept up into, into this new way of thinking. And so this wisdom writer is saying, don't do it. And I'm going to summon Solomon here to say, hey, here's the best that you can afford and it's not enough. But it is also okay if you prefer to think of the author as Solomon on his deathbed. Good arguments could be made either way. So in verses 1, so just knowing this is the author, all right? This is the Solomon or maybe even this super Solomon here. And in verses 13 through 15, we see something pretty interesting. I'm calling it a pre-summary, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a spoiler. If you look at verses 13 through 15, let's read them. So this, this Solomon says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. 
It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. Behold, all's vanity and a striving after wind. And then there's proverb. What's crooked cannot be made straight, and what's lacking cannot be counted. And so just before he conducts these four different tests of life that we're going to look at, he zooms above the sun for just a moment. So he attributes the unhappy business that he sees all over the place that we see men and women occupying themselves with. He attributes this unhappy business to God. Now, I think it's fascinating that after this observation that it is God who actually wired it this way, that you can't get to the bottom of things, that God actually drops out of the picture. And so we're not going to see God crop up again for 26 verses. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the experiment is an under-the-sun experiment, and God is not present in it, that he is doing this on purpose. And so he attributes this to God. Now, in this spoiler, he tells us his conclusion in verse 14. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is a vanity and striving after the wind. He's seen it all, and it is vanity. In a very Solomon-like way, he, he gives us this Proverbs. You can see it in verse 15. What's crooked cannot be made straight. What's lacking cannot be counted. The world as we know it. What we observe, the creation that the Bible record says this, has been subjected to futility and to vanity. That's Romans chapter 8. The world is made of stuff that even wisdom cannot iron out. We have all kinds of questions that we just can't answer. Why does cancer strike this person and not that person? Why does a triple-vaxxed person get COVID and somebody who was not vaccinated at all did not? Why does a tornado flatten an entire row of houses and leave the other untouched? And the answer to those questions is easy. We don't know. There are things in operation that even the best science that we have cannot predict. They're crooked and they cannot be straightened. He notes that what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, we just don't have all that much to work with. Kids, it's like your allowance right? What you don't have can't be counted. We are hunting, he says, with a crooked arrow, and we are at the mall with an empty wallet. All right, so that's his conclusion. He reminds me a little bit of that. How many of you have read this series of unfortunate events? You know, it reminds me of the author, right? Let me snick it, where he's always like, don't read this book. It is, a, it is a bleak, depressing book. You've got better things to do. He's like telling us in advance what he is going to find. That's his conclusion, tells us right up front. But here's the experiment. Four different things that he's going to experiment with to see if like, does this this fact that life is vanity and brief and unsubstantial and can't sustain your hopes, does that hold? Well, Solomon comes onto the stage and says, okay, new contestant, I'm going to figure this out. Test number one, test number one, wisdom. Now, it makes sense that the wisest man who ever lived would start off with wisdom. We understand this as wisdom, and you need to understand this, get this. Proverbs talks about wisdom, and it's the same word, but this is something different. Remember, there's no mention of the fear of God, which Proverbs says is is the beginning of all wisdom. No fear of God. In fact, God's not even the picture here. And so this should be understood as wisdom from reason and experience alone. We could say pure, raw intellect. 
So this is the furthest you can get with raw intellect and observation. Read verse 16 with me. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So here he is. He said, I said in my heart. So what Koheleth is going to do, he's going to invite us in. He's going to lit us into his inner dialogue, and he's going to keep doing this throughout these verses. His wisdom gathering is impressive. He knows that it was greater than all who came before him. So if this is that post-exilic writer, he is saying, I am a super Solomon. Like I have harnessed the wisdom of Solomon and all everyone before me, and I am doing like the ultimate epic experiment. Verse 17, he notes that his search includes wisdom, knowledge, and folly. And that is the fascinating part. He is going to go and he is going to try everything out. He's going to cover the whole thing. But then in verse 17, you see how quickly he reaches his conclusion. After he says, I applied my heart to know this, I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. I think it's interesting that, um, that he, he comes to this conclusion so quickly because his experiment doesn't yield uh, really anything. It doesn't yield anything. Look at it. He says, for in much wisdom and in much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, in verse 18. And so after he goes and he grapples with all these questions with wisdom, he does come out with one thing. He comes out with the fact that wisdom makes it even more painful. All right? So the only thing that wisdom does, it makes you see it and feel it even worse. That's his conclusion for wisdom. So test number one, meaning is not found in wisdom. So he turns to pleasure. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let's go ahead and read those verses. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what's good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So his instructions to him are very, very simple. In chapter 2, verse 1, enjoy yourself. But then notice how quickly his conclusion comes. This also was vanity. Pleasure, he says, for its own sake, is of little use in giving meaning to life. And the laughter of one who laughs while pursuing pleasures for their own end is worse. It's just a bit mad. Now, it's not talking about the insanity type of laughter. It's talking about kind of a morally empty kind of laughter. I heard this this type of laughter um, I was flying through Philly, I had a bit of a layover, and I was waiting. It was actually, it wasn't even past the checkpoint, but I was sitting nearby, and there were some people enjoying martinis at a bar. I just kept on hearing this one, one lady. Her laughter was just really, really loud. And 
And she, at one point, declared loudly that she didn't even have a flight. She just, she just comes to the bar. And, and I remember thinking how hard she was trying. You could tell when somebody's, like, trying to manufacture something. And, but there was something also in the laugh that disturbed me. It just sounded a little bit desperate. And I think it was. I think it was the laughter of one who was trying to find companionship by flirting with strangers in a bar at the Philly airport. Right? And I think the, the teacher would, would nod along with that. You know, he's, he's going to describe his experiments in pleasure. In verse 3, he tries to see if wine is a good way to sustain or cheer himself while coping with the bad business of a brief life. I, I'm sure he pushed the boundaries. You know, possibly he enjoyed the sensory experience of it. Later on, he says that he created these, these vineyards. So he probably had the best vendors and were trying varietals and all kinds of things. And he says, maybe this is a way that we can kind of like, you know, drown out the, the fact that my life is brief and unsubstantial. All the while, he notes this, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. I love how one commentator says this. He says, but part of him stands back from it all my mind still guiding me with wisdom to see what frivolity as a lifestyle implies and what it does to a person. And so I think Koheleth nursed his hangover. I think at the end, he felt just as empty. Next, he turns to creativity and acquiring, and we see this in verses 4 through 8. What we see in this little section is that he maxes out creativity, and maxes out what we can do by collecting beautiful things. And uh, the teacher really is playing God in a kind of way. If you read chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, you'll see that God does certain things. First of all, he, he creates something, and then he plants a garden, and he puts fruit trees in the garden, and then he waters the garden, and then he fills it with people and animals. And the teacher here is doing the exact same thing. There's something also interesting in verses 4 through 8. If you look at it sometime, just circle the number of first-person pronouns, the eyes of these words. He says, I made, I built, I made, I made, I bought, I had. And sometimes people do, uh, you know, great public works. You know, like, for instance, I'm, I'm really glad for Pierre DuPont and his personal playground that he turned over to the public. And so we enjoy Longwood, don't we? And, uh, but, this is the, but this was for him. This was his own private Eden. And, uh, and so he's kind of like saying, like, okay, can you find meaning by, by playing God? It was also included beautiful treasure in works of art in verse 8. It was everything that was civilized and also became a playground for pleasure because Solomon's harem was legendary. But what were the results of this excursion? Verse 9 well, for one thing, he says, I became great. When you, when you do an experiment like this, like Solomon, people take note of the magnificent accomplishments. And in verse 10, he notes this, his heart found pleasure in his toil. Even in an under-the-sun type pursuit, it's possible to be diverted and find pleasure in your toil. But then he immediately says, it doesn't bring lasting joy. Now, I want to pause for just a second here and, and think about this. You know, after reading about this, you know, you may even, I don't know, envy the guy a bit. You know, here's a guy that, if he were here today, he would be featured on the front of 
you know, his house would be in whatever architectural digest. He would be on GQ. People would be writing things about him. He would be wearing Versace and, and Armani and Louis Vuitton. You know, like, he'd be wearing all the brands. When he stepped out of his black limousine, he'd have a supermodel on his arm. I mean, he had like a huge royal family uh, coming to him. Like he withheld nothing from himself. You know, if you talk to young people today, like in any school, who do they admire? Who do they want to be like? They want to be like the rich and famous. They want to drip with jewelry. They want to have multiple houses. They, they want to do whatever their hearts desire. That is who we, that's who we emulate. There's a preacher um, named Philip Ryken, and he records how uh, Tom Brady was interviewed after he led the Patriots to their third um, Super Bowl. And uh, the interviewer was talking to him, and, and Brady said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? I still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, he trails off for a bit. I've got, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this isn't what it's all cracked up to be. Then the interviewer asked, what's the answer? And Brady could only say, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. You know, I think the teacher would have listened to that interview and been like, well, duh. You know, I already did that experiment. You know, we have something that the preacher didn't have. We have an insight today into the lives of the rich and famous. And I think it's, it's fascinating that after all have said and done, if you go and you, say, look at, say, a child actor that you knew when you, you know, were a kid, and you look at how they're doing in the later part of their career, uh, or you look at somebody who, you know, was like they were, they were everything, and you look at where their life is right now, it's amazing how often it is, it is sad, and they are sad. You know, and the question for us today is this. You know, I think it's easy for us to uh, wag a finger at, you know, at people that have stuff that we don't have and say, like, yeah, you shouldn't try to do that experiment. But could it be that maybe, you know, just maybe, you could spot in your own soul a little part of you that believes that your life would be better if you could have just a little bit of what they have. You know, it reminds me of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Remember, if I were a rich man, right? Would it ruin some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? You know, sure, we'd say that money doesn't solve everything. None of us would say that. Of course, we're thinking, man, but it wouldn't be a bad start, right? I could fix a lot of things with a lot more money. And of course, we'd use it in a sanctified way, of course. You know, which of us couldn't use our homes being a little bit more of an Eden? You know, my wife and I joke, you know, like, you know, just leave those dishes, the maid will get it. And for some reason, she never does. You know, I, I do think about this, but the truth is, most of us, most of us are closer to being able to pursue this experiment than we know. You know, our culture has more possibilities, things that only Solomon could have dreamed of. Like we live in climate-controlled houses. You go to the grocery store and there's just a world of foods. There's a world of drinks that you can purchase. Um, he, he, only the rich could have live music, but we see live music all the time or we have it you know, on tap whenever we want. 
you know, even the carnal things that he pursued. We have a hookup culture, and we've got an internet that can provide a virtual harem to anybody. This is where wisdom serves us. The thing about wisdom is you don't have to experiment and do everything in order to glean from the wisdom. And foolishness is when you decide that you're going to. You don't have to run your own experiment to discover what many people have learned. And it's called uh, this rule that the more you seek, the less you find. Listen, I want you to listen to his disappointment, okay, and the way that he piles up these terms. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. It says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You can almost see him just like stacking up the, these terms to show just how disappointed he was in this experiment. So we've got wisdom and then we've got pleasure. And he comes back from this great hunt empty-handed. So he devises another test. And we see this in verses 12 through 17. Now, it's another autobiographical note. He, he once again notes that he, he turns to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And he's keeping up to, us up to date on his progress. Notice that he says, for what can a man do that comes after the king? Only that which has already been done. So he's just keeping us posted here that, um, again, he is, he is doing the most that anyone's ever done. Well, it kind of circles back to the wisdom at the beginning of the quest and the folly of the second part of his quest. And he observes that wisdom is a superior way to go. Wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Look at verses 12 and, and following. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can a man do that comes after the king? Only what has been done. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. And then it gives us this proverb in verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he confirms that there's a huge advantage of wisdom over folly. A wise person, even though it's more painful for them, sees things and doesn't fall into it. The fool just stumbles right into it. But the conclusion in verse 19 is, is, is shattering. Notice that um, there's an event that no amount of wisdom can avoid. Excuse me, it's not verse 19. The conclusion here is that there's a, an event that neither of them can avoid. And what is that? It's death. Verse 15, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. And so here he's got this fact that whether or not you're wise or whether you're a fool, both of you die. And the gain that you have under the sun is the same. And you can't even hope to make your mark because there's no enduring remembrance, as we talked about last week. Most wise people are forgotten quickly. So even though wisdom is better than folly, it still can't shield you from death. And as one generation goes and another generation comes, the earth continues its cycle. So there's the third test. So you've got, you've got wisdom, you've got pleasure, and then you've got the fact that, that wisdom is better than folly, but still it can't protect you from death. And then he gives one more in verses 18 through 23. He's going to answer the question here, does leaving behind an inheritance 
give you profit under the sun. Let's look at those verses. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be master for all which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of the heart which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And so we have the the fact here that you know, you may say, like, hey, I'm going to pay it forward. I'm going to live a great inheritance for my kids. But then he says, but this, the joy of that's taken away because that may be a fool and may squander what you worked for. And it's even worse if you're a workaholic. So then not only do you leave an inheritance that you toil for and somebody spends it, but also while you're here, you spend all these sleepless nights and you can't enjoy it. And so those are his tests. He's concluded his test, and we're left wondering, is there any comfort or is there any hope? Well, I do think that there's some comfort and hope. First of all, in the fact that he, he can actually stand apart from this and kind of be morally outraged. You know, just the, the fact that he's saying, like, this is a bad thing shows that there is something else. But we see some really unexpected cheer in verse 24. Here's how he concludes. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Okay, remember the first thing that was from the hand of God was, was this, this sad business of a brief life. This also is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only give to the one who pleases only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. Now what is going on here? So after telling us that all this is vanity, now he says, enjoy it. This is one of those moments when he zooms above the clouds and, and the sun breaks in. If you notice, God is back in the picture. You know, when you try to stop trying to find meaning in life in all the wrong places, then and only then can you receive them and enjoy them like they were meant to be enjoyed. I mentioned that I've profited from the sermons of of Chris Bronze, that pastor up in Illinois, and uh, he put it this way, when you stop making good things ultimate, then you're free to enjoy them as a gift from God. You know, think about that. When you stop making good things ultimate things, then you can enjoy them as a gift from God. The teacher even says that, that the meaning that the unrighteous ones fail to find are stored up and then given to the godly. It's kind of like this law of conservation of meaning. It remains constant, but it gets reallocated. So in the end, we find that meaning is not found in wisdom. It's not found in the pursuit of pleasure. It's not found in wisdom over folly. It's not found in laying up an inheritance and pursuing possessions, but it is, according to verse 24, 
enjoying God's daily gift of eating, drinking, and work. In week one, we learned this, that there is no gain in all of our toil. But then we added, apart from God, there's no gain in all of our toil. Similarly, there's no enjoyment in the pursuits of life, eating, drinking, and work, apart from receiving them as God's daily gift. How we receive them makes all the difference. And so in this, we begin to see that the teacher is a man of faith. He anticipates something that the Lord Jesus says. In Matthew 6, verses 9 and 11, Jesus taught us to pray. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. It turns out that our daily bread is a gift from the Father's hand. The eating and drinking and the working. Do we glorify God by despising what he gives to us from his hand? No, we glorify God by receiving it and enjoying it. The basic things in life are not a bad business. In fact, they're indicator of a father's care and kindness. And this gives us permission to enjoy the things of life. You can look at it kind of like an illustration of a window in a window pane. You know, when you're looking through a, a big window, you don't stare at the plate of glass, you know, and tap on it and say, wow, that's really wonderful glass. Right? What you're looking for is what is beyond that. And that's what it is. The gifts that God gives us are, are the gla- pane of glass. You're not just supposed to focus on the gifts. You look through them at the one that gave them. And so this allows us to enjoy things. So the other day, my wife and I went out to eat, and we enjoyed a, a wonderful meal. You know, it was like, you know, a really fancy lettuce and perfectly seared shrimp and, you know, roasted you know, beets and a wonderful vinaigrette. And we, we enjoyed every bite of that meal. Now, if we were just in it for like, hey, this is, you know, this is what gives, gives us meaning. I'm, I'm going to enjoy this. But when you say like, we can enjoy this together. God made food taste good. What a great gift. And enjoy that. It allows us to experience things with gratitude. Jesus goes on to teach in Matthew chapter 6. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, and here comes Solomon again, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, when we receive simple things from the hand of God, with gratitude, we enjoy something that Solomon, even in his experimental mode, could not. And so today, I want us to know this. Enjoy the gift and love the giver. Don't look at the window pane, the, the gift. Look through it at what matters, the love of the one who gave it. And so if you've not met the giver, uh, don't delay. Uh, he is kind, and he is ready to receive you, and he is ready to give you meaning in life. I want you to just listen to these verses very briefly from Psalm chapter 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all that they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. 
you know, if you come to him and you are wearied by this unhappy business that life, that's life under the sun, uh, scripture's teaching all across the board is that he will not reject you. And when you come to him, you will find refuge. And you also find that you lack no good thing. And for the first time in your life, you'll be able to enjoy them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom that is in this book. Thank you that you've not left us without a voice. We thank you that apart from you, our toil is in vain. But in Christ, it is not. Thank you that apart from you, we'll not be able to find significance and enjoyment in all the things that we do. But when they come from your hands, we can. So Lord, we ask that you would begin to help us as we search for a meaningful life. Make us wise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.